missed it last week being in nursery, but I am so glad to be back. Uh, it has often been said that the only two sure things in this world are death and taxes. And I think that's probably mostly true, although some have gone to great lengths to avoid taxes and have even been successful. The normal person, though, can be assured that taxes are going to come, that your government will tax you, and at some point, you will die. Now, I know that just encourages you all so much, and you can't wait to go home and tell your friends that you learned in church today that your government's going to tax you and that you're going to die. But how should Christians think about death? And how should Christians think about taxes? As our government grows increasingly secular and pushes things like so-called same-sex marriage and abortion rights even further and further, how should Christians think about paying their taxes? Look with me again at our, our text for today's sermon, beginning Matthew 17, starting in verse 22. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And we came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Will you pray one more time with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in every page the truth is filled and your glory revealed. Lord, I pray that this word would uh, instruct us to live rightly in a world where uh, sin abounds, and yet, Lord, where we strive to live honorable lives, uh, putting sin to death for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. So help us to live honorable lives and help us to learn from this text. Lord, I pray that you would equip me uh, with the words to speak, Lord, that you would use the words that I have prepared to speak to the heart, to sanctify your people, and to regenerate the lost in this room. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. From our text today, I want to show you that Jesus really, really cares about his future, or about our future in his heavenly kingdom. But Jesus also really cares about our lives in the here and now, in the kingdom of this world. Jesus cares so much that he gives us three principles for living in this complicated, already and not yet reality. The first is looking to the future kingdom. The second is look to the true king. And the third, look out for your neighbor. That'll serve as our outline as we move through this text. So look with me as we examine our first principle of living in the already and not yet reality of this world. Look to the future kingdom. Beginning in verse 22, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. 
and they were greatly distressed. Jesus predicts his death again. If you remember back in Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus predicted his death. He said, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples uh, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The repetition of this prediction uh, shows that it is serious and that it is coming quickly. Jesus knows that the time of his earthly ministry is, is coming to a close, and he does not want his disciples to be unprepared, so he again reminds them of what is to come. And remember that during uh, that prediction, Peter rebuked Jesus. This is even a distressing prediction for the disciples, and even verse 23 tells us that they were greatly distressed. But they learn an important lesson. While Jesus may be, or while they may be distressed, they better not rebuke Jesus. That time Peter had rebuked Jesus, he, Jesus in turn rebuked Peter, told him, get behind me, Satan. He said that in front of all the other disciples. But they hear Jesus' prophetic words, and they take Jesus' prophetic words to heart, and they are distressed. But Jesus doesn't tell them about his death and his resurrection and his deliverance in order for them to be distressed. Jesus tells them about his death so that they might learn something. It may not be perfectly clear to them now, but it is something that soon they will learn. They will learn that the deliverance, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of the Son of Man is no accident and it is not random. All of these things come about because God has purposed them to come about. Notice that the text says the Son of Man is about to be delivered. Again, we see the emphasis on the nearness of the event by the saying of about to be. Jesus is telling his disciples it is coming and they ought to look to it. But he is also telling them how it will happen, that the Son of Man must be delivered. He must be killed. He must be given to the chief priests. To whom was he delivered by? Certainly Judas did betray Jesus and led him to the chief priests, or led the chief priests rather to Jesus. But more certainly than that, it is God who betrays, or not, I'm sorry, excuse me, God who delivers Jesus. God the Father will hand God the Son over to the rulers and authorities. And the Son of Man will be killed by those authorities as Peter will later preach in Acts 2.22. He says, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was delivered up to be killed because God had purposed it to be. It is not random, and it is no accident. It is the plan of God and working for the purpose of God. You ask, what is that purpose? The purpose of Jesus' death on the cross was to be a ransom to bring many people to glory, to save sinners 
from their sins. On him would the Father heap all of his people's sins on Jesus. Jesus' death secures his people by paying for the sin, their sin on the cross, and again by securing it in resurrection power on the third day. This is the good news that sounds like bad news. The good news that we are saved not by a tragic and distressing accident, but by the tragic and distressing death of the Messiah. The good news that these disciples in this text only sort of see, but will later give their lives to preach. So brother, sister, here is the principle. Jesus wants you to look to God's sovereign plan in bringing many sons into his everlasting kingdom. God wants you to look ahead to the future kingdom. You live in this world, but you are already a part of a future kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, a greater kingdom. Just as Jesus submitted to death, so too we also will be subject to death. What matters is not, will you die? But how will you die? How will you die? Will you die following Jesus faithfully? Or will you die in your sins? Death is inevitable for us all, even Jesus. But death is temporary for Jesus. And it is temporary for all who live in him. And to the unbeliever, maybe you don't know Jesus and you're in this room. If you don't know Jesus, then don't look to a kingdom that you aren't a part of. The, hear this good news that the Son of Man's suffering, death, and resurrection was no accident or tragic coincidence, but it was the planned and purpose act of God to pay for the sins of a great and innumerable people to bring vile sinners like me and anybody else in this room who has put their faith in Jesus into the loving kingdom of God. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, he pleads with you, look at him and his death. See and believe that he loved you enough to plan his own death so that you might live in his righteous kingdom forever. Put your faith in Jesus and be saved from your sins. But Jesus doesn't want us only to look to a future kingdom. He also wants us to, number two, look to the true king. Beginning in verse 24, going through 26, it says, And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. What is the temple tax, and where does it come from? So I'm sure the, the hot-button question on your mind. The temple tax was instituted by God in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11 through 16. It was God's way of providing for his people through their own giving. And the money was given so that the functions of the tent of meeting, later the temple, could be maintained. 
but it was also a government-instituted tax. The nation of Israel was a theocratic nation, which means that when the temple tax was instituted, it was instituted by the rule of the government. Unlike our tithing in our churches today, which is a free gift that we give out of our abundance and generosity of heart, the temple tax was a requirement. It was not a voluntary gift, but it was required by the government for the people to pay. And Exodus tells us when the temple tax was to be taken. And if you look in chapter 30 and verse 12, it says, at the census of the people. During the, simple, the census of the people, they were to give one half shekel or two drachma from our text. It's the same, same currency. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this text, says this, quote, Every male was required to pay the tax, which amounted to half a shekel at each census. Later, the priests and leaders of the nation began to require it on an annual basis. One of the reasons for the presence of the money changers in the temple, to Jesus' great annoyance, was because many of the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem during the Passover needed to pay the temple tax. To do so, they had to exchange their native currency for the local currency, and they had to pay a tariff for the exchange, end quote. Jesus knows the temple tax. He knows where it comes from, what it's for, how it's instituted, how it's supposed to be done. He knows that he could pay this tax, and he would likely be going to pay for much more corruption by the Pharisees, right? They were taking a tax upon a tax. And Jesus also knows that he doesn't need to pay this tax. So when the temple tax collector comes asking questions, Jesus reminds Peter to look to the true king. Look at verses 24 and 26 again. The temple tax collector asks, does your teacher not pay tax? If Jesus ought to pay the tax and he does not, then Jesus would be sinning. Jesus would have violated a clear command set down by Moses who, who gave that command under the inspiration of the Spirit, right? And this is the same Jesus who said, not a dot, not an iota will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This may seem small to us, but it's not small to God. So how does Peter answer in Jesus' defense? So this is your opportunity, Peter. He says, yes. What does he mean? What does Peter mean? Does Peter mean... Yes, Jesus doesn't pay the tax, or yes, Jesus does pay the tax. I think both answers are plausible, depending on which commentary you'll read. You'll hear either an argument one way or an argument another way. It doesn't really matter. The main point is the main point, and it stays the main point, no matter how Jesus or Peter intended that answer to be. The main point is this. Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax, but he chooses to pay it because he has freedom in his true king. Why doesn't Jesus need to pay the tax? Jesus doesn't need to pay the tax because Jesus is the son. Look at verses 25 and 26. Text says, And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? 
Jesus, knowing that Peter was approached and anticipating Peter's inevitable question, Jesus asks Peter a question. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty simple question when we think about it. Do the kings of the earth take tax from their own children or from everyone else? We have to remember that, that back in those days, a kingdom was exactly that, a kingdom. It was one family headed by one man who ruled over uh, not only his family, but everybody in his nation whom he had subjected either um, through military conquest or tradition, but kings ruled their subjects, and they took tax from their subjects. And that's how the king would support not only his family, but his kingdom. So if the king were to take tax from his children, it would be like the king taxing himself. Would it make sense? The money would just dry up. So the children of the tax, because they're heirs to the king and someday going to inherit that kingdom and need the tax money to keep the kingdom going, the sons are free from tax. That's the point. The king would tax outside of his family from his subjects. So Peter answers from others. Pretty obvious answer. And Jesus responds with the corollary truth. Then the sons are free. Jesus is saying that because he is the son of God, he is also free from this taxation. And that we, also being God's sons, are free. We are free because we are sons to a different king. We are sons of a king whose rule and authority does not end. And Jesus is teaching Peter that he had not yet paid this tax because he is free in a true king. Now, if only we had preached this text before tax day, maybe we could have saved a bunch of you a ton of money, right? As we will see, though, Jesus doesn't stop here. If he did, Christians might be able to make the case that we are free from taxation altogether. We might be able to make the case that we don't need to honor our governing authorities. Brother, sister, friend, Christianity does not teach that we don't have to follow our government authorities. It also doesn't teach us that we belong to our governing authorities. Christians can joyfully be obedient to their governing authorities because they are freed by knowing that they serve a true king whose kingdom is far beyond even the mightiest of earthly kingdoms. Remember that Jesus was completely aware of the corruption of both the Roman government and the Jewish government. But as we are shown in verse 27, Jesus still paid his tax. Yet Jesus also knew that those governments are ultimately under the subjection of a true king, as Paul will later pick up on this principle in Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. And it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God had appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. 
for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Jesus frees us to live in peace with our governing authorities, respecting but not worshiping their authority by reminding us to look to our true king. But Jesus gives us another principle for living in the already and not yet of this world. He's, the third principle, look out for your neighbor. Look at verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. This may be one of the most bizarre miracles that I think Jesus has ever performed, right? It's super strange. In one commentary, David Platt says this. He says, quote, consider what had to take place for this miracle to occur. Jesus ordained that somebody would drop a shekel into the water, that a fish would scoop it into its mouth but not swallow it all the way, that the fish would swim over to the shore at the moment Peter walked up, and as Peter cast out his hook, that he would catch that fish. All of that happened so that the temple tax could be paid in order not to bring unnecessary offense to people whom God desires to save from sin, end quote. Jesus uses this bizarre, strange, unexpected miracle to teach us a very important principle. The principle is this. We are to use our freedom in Christ to look out for our neighbor. We are to use our freedom in Christ to look out for our neighbor. Paul, again, is very helpful in continuing this principle in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Just because we are free in Jesus doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want. We as God's people are to live in such a way that we show no unnecessary offense to our neighbors. God is working for the salvation of a great multitude, and we do not know whom he has chosen, whom, his, whom amongst our neighbors would be called into his kingdom. And we do not know the means by which God will do that. Could it not be through our honorable, unoffensive conduct that our neighbors see our love for them and want to know more about who Jesus is? We need to use our freedom in Christ to serve those around them, around us, to not give unnecessary offense to our neighbors and to share the gospel with them. Now, this doesn't mean that we should disobey Scripture's clear teachings just to be less offensive. 
When it comes to obeying God and man, we obey God before we ever obey man. I'm sure some of our neighbors, for honest, would be very offended. Very offended by some of our beliefs. Like the idea that only men and women can be married. That a man cannot marry a man and a woman cannot marry a woman. But we should not, we must not, give up on believing the truth of God's word in marriage and in other areas because it offends our neighbors. Must not give up on that. Peter and the apostles, when they were dragged before the Jewish leaders and told to stop preaching the gospel, said in defiance of their governing authorities, we must obey God rather than men. So how might we do this? Let me first suggest some practical ways. Let me just suggest some practical ways we can do this. First, we ought to be cultivators of a Christian worldview. Parents, are you teaching your kids what the Bible says? How's family worship in your home? Do you catechize your kids? Does your family spend time in Scripture daily or once a week or once a month? Or are you, as a parent, being discipled? Are you learning from your elders or from other more seasoned Christians what it means to be a faithful parent, what it means to raise your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Are you here for Sunday school, fellowship group, discipleship groups, or Sunday evening services? Now, now not all of those may be helpful or beneficial. Some of them may be. You know, I need to go to all of them. But may I suggest that being fed only on a Sunday morning service once a week should be supplemented by other things in your life. May I suggest that thinking rightly through the complexities of this principle will only happen if you are cultivating a Christian worldview. And may I also suggest that your kids will only faithfully think through these issues if you instill that same Christian belief and Christian worldview into them from a very early age until they have grown into adulthood. Second, we ought to be the most honorable citizens in any town we live. What do I mean? I mean that we should be the first to put aside our likes and dislikes for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of following the law. If the law does not forbid what God commands or command what God forbids, we should be very hesitant, very careful to think about disobeying that law. We should be very careful if the law does not forbid what God commands or command what God forbids. Now, this extends all the way from taxation laws to traffic laws. So don't pull me over the next time I run that stop sign. Um, just kidding. I'll obey it. Um, to laws against property damage and laws against bodily harm. But what about the laws that you really, really don't like? What about those laws? What about when the government is super corrupt? When it confuses justice with violence, makes evil seem good, 
and makes good seem evil. Well, Jesus knows how you feel. Remember that Jesus lived under the corruption of two different governments at the same time. Herod and the Jews were not good rulers. Herod was greedy, selfish, filled with his own love of self and and a desire for his own glory. The Pharisees were taking tax on tax and lining their pockets, abusing the law and imposing unnecessary rules and burdens on the people of God. And and the Romans were no better. I mean, they they were state-sponsored pagans using money to build temples to false gods and, and recruiting and using the money they got to fund an army that waged bloodthirsty campaigns of conquest for the glory of Caesar. Jesus knows what it means to live under corrupt governments. And yet, Jesus joyfully submitted to paying his taxes. Here in Matthew 17, Jesus pays the temple tax. Even though he knows where it's going, he pays the temple tax. And then in Matthew 22, Jesus supports Caesar's tax. Look with me at Matthew 22 real quick, beginning in verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This is the scribes questioning Jesus. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The morality or immorality of the government doesn't determine our responsibility. Our responsibility is determined by the word of God. And Jesus tells us to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Third, God will provide for our needs. Notice that Jesus could have just told Peter to pay the tax. But the fact that he doesn't and he provides the tax money in this way suggests that Peter likely didn't have the money to pay the tax. Jesus knew what Peter needed and provided it for him. And and also, just as a note, the reason that Peter gets a shekel is because there wasn't really a two-drachma coin. So often, what, because the males were taxed in that day, two heads of families or two friends would go to the temple together, pay one shekel for two people. Two drachma plus two drachma equals one shekel. That's how they would do it. So, brother, sister, we can trust God to meet our needs. If Jesus will go to this extraordinary means to provide for Peter, then why would he not also provide for you? Why would he not? But notice what Jesus doesn't do for Peter. He doesn't give him a million shekels. He doesn't. If I I were to paraphrase a psalm, Jesus owns the, the shekels in a thousand trout. But Jesus only gives Peter one shekel because it's all he needs. 
Jesus only gives Peter the one. God doesn't promise us wealth. Now, there's nothing wrong if you happen to obtain wealth. Steward it well. But Jesus doesn't promise wealth. God promises to meet his people's needs. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we can be generous and not anxious. We can give and be taxed because ultimately it is God who provides. And fourth, if you're an unbeliever, don't start by following this principle. Is being an honorable citizen good? Yeah, absolutely it is. And, and following these principles will probably lead to your, to your betterment, to your flourishing. But don't seek to be honorable and moral without first seeking Jesus. Instead of adopting the morality of Jesus, let Jesus adopt you. See his sacrifice on the cross. See his resurrection from the dead and put your trust in him that he pays for your sin. See him. See his resurrection and see that he secures, you will believe in him, he secures your future in his everlasting kingdom ruled by an everlasting king. So put your faith in Jesus and be free to follow him. Don't just follow his rules alone. Follow him as your true king and then faithfully follow his rules. Death and taxes may be sure for us in this life, but even more sure than both of those things is the future kingdom we have with Jesus. And he loves us so much that he tells us how to live in the already and not yet reality of this world while we await his coming. So brother, sister, look to the future kingdom Look to the true king and look out for your neighbor while we await the return of Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me?